In the past 50 years, the cure rate for malignant pediatric cancers in general has improved from less than 10% to more than 75%, yet brain tumors lag behind this remarkable accomplishment. Why is that? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special series on children's health. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. James Olson, associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine and a hematologist-oncologist at the Seattle Children's Hospital. In addition, Dr. Olson is an associate member of the Clinical Research Division of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Welcome, Dr. Olson. Thank you. Today we are discussing pediatric brain tumor research. Dr. Olson, let's start with trying to answer the question posed in my introduction. Why has the cure rate for malignant brain tumors lagged behind the cure rate for other pediatric cancers? Well, first let's begin with why has the cure rate for other cancers improved so dramatically? Okay. The answer to that is that about 35, 40 years ago, the pediatric oncologists across the country all set their ego aside and got together and formed a national group that said, we're going to learn from every patient that we take care of. And they began enrolling each child that came in for clinical treatment of their cancer into a national group of patients who were studied on clinical trials. By doing this, we've not only treated each child across the country to the best of our ability, but we've learned by comparing treatment A to treatment B and making 5% or 10% gains at a time. And so it really is a remarkable piece of medical history of the 20th century that we were able to change cure rates from 10% to over 75%. Now, to answer your question, the reason that brain tumors are lagging behind are for a couple of reasons. One is that you can't take a big margin of normal tissue when you remove a brain tumor. There's critical tissue that helps you speak and think and move right next to the brain tumor that you're trying to take out. So if you take too much out, you might leave a patient paralyzed. And if you take too little out, you might be leaving tumor behind that's capable of becoming resistant to your chemotherapy and radiation therapy. In addition to that, at the time I entered research about seven or eight years ago, there were no good brain tumor models. So we couldn't really learn from the laboratory about how to best treat patients with brain tumors. And instead, we were taking our cues from drugs that worked in adults with colon cancer or adults with breast cancer. So we didn't have a laboratory basis for translating what we were learning into patient care. Well, then when you started your laboratory on pediatric brain tumor research, how did you devise the strategy for advancing it and making it what it is today? Well, first of all, again, we work with many other labs across the country. We have many talented collaborators across the country and around the world. One of the things that we've done in the same spirit as the clinical trial group is we have a beautiful open communication where we share our data way before we publish it with each other and talk about what the most important things to look at are. As a group, we recognize that the lack of a mouse model of pediatric brain cancer was really holding us back from prioritizing and testing candidate drugs. The other thing that we realized was that the cell lines that people had been using, which are uh, cancer cells that you can grow in the laboratory, were mostly 
derived from patients 20 or 30 years ago at Duke University and had been used all these years for research, and they'd really changed a lot in the meantime and really weren't the best representation of pediatric brain tumors. So the first thing our laboratory did was to set up a platform in which the surgeons at Seattle Children's Hospital would give us all of the brain tumor that was left over after an operation that wasn't needed by the pathologist. We would take the patient's brain tumors and separate it into near single cells and then incubate those cells in plates of tissue culture media that each contained different drugs that could potentially work against the tumors. By doing that, we got ideas about which classes of drugs could work well for pediatric brain cancers. And as an example of that, one of the things that we learned was that 13-cis retinoic acid, which most of your listeners would know as Accutane, a drug that's used to treat acne in teenagers, is as effective as the harshest chemotherapy that we use for treating medulloblastomas, which is called cisplatin, in the cells that came from our patient samples. Why would that be? I don't know that we want to go through the whole molecular mechanism, but it turns out that in medulloblastoma cells, medulloblastomas are the most common type of pediatric cancer, the retinoic acid turns on a gene called bone morphogenetic protein 2. This is also known as BMP2, and when BMP2 is turned on, it gets secreted by the cells and comes back and kills the cell that made it, and it also kills the nearby cells, all of this with no chemotherapy involved. We then took that finding from the human tumor cells and tested it in the best mouse models that were available at the time. And we found that in those mouse models as well, the Accutane slowed the growth of the tumors. So we then tested it with cisplatin to find out whether we should give it at the same time as chemotherapy. And we found when we used the two drugs together, they worked four times better than either drug alone. And based on all of that data, we've now opened a clinical trial in 250 hospitals and universities across the country where children in the children's oncology group are treated. Half of those kids will get the Accutane as part of the treatment, and half will not. And we will learn through that mechanism whether or not this vitamin derivative, basically, is helping to cure the kids that have medulloblastoma. We know that pediatric brain tumors can certainly be devastating. We also know that they're not particularly common. How can you make progress on a disease that only affects a small number of children at your hospital in any given year? Well, one of the ways is through working with these cooperative groups that I've been talking about. As I mentioned, we collaborate with 250 other children's hospitals and universities so that we can learn from each patient across the whole country which drug is better than the others. We also collaborate on research at that same level. And now, importantly, we've gone to preclinical testing to prioritize the compounds. I told you a little bit about how we use patient cells that come from the tumors that are resected in children to prioritize drugs. And we've gone a step further than that by making a genetically engineered mouse that develops the exact kind of cancer that children develop. In that mouse, we can test the drugs that are candidates to bring into human clinical trials and prioritize those to the very best drugs or the drug combinations that should go into children so that every child that is treated is actually receiving the drug that, based on everything we know, is most likely to cure their cancer. Now, do the patients and even their families have a role in advancing pediatric brain tumor research? Oh, they sure do. There's uh, a number of ways that they do that. The first is by enrolling in the clinical trials. Enrolling in our clinical trials is a voluntary process, and patients can either enroll or be treated with the standard therapy. 
and they can also pull out of the study at any time they want. But the fact is, in pediatrics, we enroll close to 90% of our patients in clinical trials, whereas in adult oncology, the number that are enrolled is probably closer to 5%, and that might account for part of the difference of why we've made so much progress in pediatric cancer. The other way that families and children participate is, for example, the parents of the kids that we were taking care of here got together about eight years ago and said, we're really frustrated by the lack of funding for pediatric brain tumor research, so we are going to start raising money so that you guys can do research. And when you have a good idea, we want you to be able to move it forward with or without funding from the NIH. And in the ensuing eight years, the families just at our hospital have raised over $5 million to help further the goals. And this has really allowed us to make that mouse model of cancer, to develop a molecule that lights up cancer cells so the surgeons can see them, all of these things that are actually a little bit too risky to be funded on the first try by the National Institutes of Health. Now, when a patient goes into a clinical trial, 50% of those patients will not be getting the treatment, correct? Well, in, in the case of these clinical trials, typically one group of patients gets the standard therapy, the best that we know how to treat them at that time, and the other half get the exact same treatment plus a new drug that we're testing out. And so none of the patients are left without therapy or with an inadequate therapy. It's simply that we want to find out if the new drug that we're testing improves survival without increasing toxicity. Well, what do you do if the family says, you know, we want to be included in the trial that has specifically my child receiving the new medication? Yeah, unfortunately, that's not an option for families. If we did that, it's possible that we would skew the results of the trial by putting, say, kids with more aggressive tumors on the arm of the trial that has a more aggressive treatment strategy, and say taking kids who had a smaller tumor that was totally resected and putting them on the kind of the chemotherapy light version. The problem with that is that it could be that the biology of those kids' cancer would be dictating whether they did well or not, and we might not actually be learning about the drugs. So one of the things that we counsel families about before they enroll in the clinical trial is that the decision about which arm of the trial that they will be enrolled in is made at the Children's Oncology Group Central Data Center rather than having the physicians or the families make a choice. And they enter the trial knowing that, and, and uh, really it's not a big problem since we know that none of the arms are inferior to others. Also, as the trial progresses, we monitor very closely and at the first sign that one of the arms is better than the others, it's quite likely that we will stop the other arm and bring all the children into the arm that's doing better. And if you had a crystal ball, Dr. Olson, and thinking about the future, both near and far future, in terms of brain tumor treatment, what would you say is going to be? I think there are a number of advances that we're going to see. Uh, on the surgical side, uh, I think that it's more and more likely that molecular imaging will allow surgeons to actually see where the cancer cells are at the time that they're resecting the cancer cells. Meaning tumor paint? Tumor paint is one example. I think there are a number of other groups that are working on alternative molecules, but the idea is the same, that the patient would receive a drug that would cause the cancer cells to light up so the surgeons can see them at the time of operation and distinguish them from normal brain. On the side of therapy, we're learning more and more about pathways that are important for cancer cell survival but are not important for the rest of the body. And these 
pathways can be specifically targeted with drugs that prevent the cancer cells from growing without causing as many side effects in the rest of the body as traditional chemotherapy. And finally, we're learning more and more about how to target therapies directly to cancer cells by sending them in on a molecule that finds the cancer cells and delivers the therapeutic without delivering them to the hair follicles and the bone marrow and all those places that cause the side effects that we typically see with standard chemotherapy at this point. I want to thank Dr. James Olson, who has been our guest. We have been discussing pediatric brain tumor research. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to a special series on children's health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.